My question is, why did Kyle get a woo and I didn't? <laughs> That's better. <clears throat> okay, you've got an outline in front of you, and we've got a two-week gap. So let me recap very briefly uh, what we've seen so far in three steps. You've got three bullet points on the sheet. Uh, first, we have defined prayer as asking God for things. Part of reaching that definition, which is always the case if you want to be clear on anything, is saying no to things. Um, and so we got rid of some common understandings of prayer and said, no, it's not that. It's not ritual acts, for example, like lighting a candle or chanting certain words. It's not a particular time or posture. And we said particularly it's not listening to God. We do listen to God as we read his word and listen to it taught. But prayer is not to be confused with listening to God. It is speaking to God. So that's the first thing. We define prayer as asking God for things. Secondly, we explored some reasons why we do not pray so that we might overcome them. Reasons for not praying include not believing in the sovereignty or ability of God to change things in answer to our prayers. Or believing in the sovereignty of God, but sort of misbelieving in it, misunderstanding it, so we conclude from the sovereignty of God that our prayers don't make any difference. Well, we had a bit of a, an answer to that this morning, didn't we? Or we don't pray because we feel our lives are too sinful and it would be hypocritical to pray. Or we don't know what to pray for. Or perhaps because we just don't feel the need to pray. And we're doing okay, we're, life is treating us okay, and so we don't have that sense of urgency. Or perhaps because we don't see the world in the way God sees it, and so we don't pray. The third thing we have done is suggested that an answer to all of these problems is to really understand what prayer is. So you'll have noticed that we haven't really kind of got to a list of do's and don'ts and how-tos and how to organise your prayer life. We will get there eventually and hopefully find some helpful stuff. But to get us praying, we have to understand what prayer is. And we've said it is profoundly simple. It's a deep theological subject. We're going to interact with some difficult and interesting things. But at its heart, prayer is very, very simple. It is asking God for things. But part of that is understanding the God to whom we pray. And so, to whom do we pray is the topic. And I want to start with speaking God's language. If we are to interact with other people, we kind of need to speak the language uh, they speak. And the same is true with God. So if your God is a Babylonian fertility God, then the language you will speak to that God is a fitting kind of language, the sexual ritual, sacrificing children, and so on. That is the language that the Babylonian fertility God understands. If your God is some kind of inanimate force, well, how do you speak to that God? You may speak to that God by aligning yourself with it, by going to a stone circle on Midsummer's <coughs> Eve or something like that. If your God is a cow as is the case for millions of people in our world, you relate to your God by feeding and protecting it. If your God is a dumb idol, 
you will bow down to it and chant incomprehensible words to it, like om, 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 over and over again. People actually do that because it's a dumb idol. So the God you worship determines the language you speak to that God. I'm going to read you a quote from this book called Death of a Guru by Rabinadrath Maharaj. Anybody read that? It's a great conversion story. And I'm just going to read you a, a, a little quote. Rising early each morning, so this is him talking about his pre-Christian days. I would repeat the appropriate mantra, mantra to Vishnu and offer obeisance inwardly in our, to our family guru. I recited the morning prayer of remembrance most earnestly, resolving thereby to do the day's work under the guidance of Lord Vishnu by affirming that I was one with Brahman. I am the Lord in no wise different from him, the Brahman suffering from no disabilities such as afflictions and anguish. I am existence, knowledge, bliss, ever free. O Lord of the world, all intelligence, the paramount deity, the spouse of Lakshmi, O Vishnu, waking in the early morning, I shall comply with the responsibilities of my mundane existence. Then came my pre-dawn ceremonial bath, an act of purification that prepared me for the worship that followed. I would then recite the Gayatri mantra, beginning with the names of the three words, Om, Bu, Bhuva, Suva, we meditate upon that adorable effulgence and the resplendent vivifier, Savita. May he stimulate our intellects. Considered to be the mantra of all mantras, the very essence of the spiritual power that a Brahmin gains, I repeat this to the sun, derived from the Rig Veda hundreds of times each day, always in Sanskrit, the language of the gods. The value was in the repetition, the more times the better. And I repeated it, thousands of times as a small child before learning what it even meant. More important than understanding the meaning was to correctly articulate the Sanskrit sounds. That alone formed the basis for the efficacy of the mantra. I firmly believed, as do all Orthodox Hindus, that the mantra embodied the deity itself and created what it expressed, and that by the proper repetition of the Gayatri mantra and daily worship, the sun itself was kept in its proper position. Now, that is a fascinating insight, I think, and I don't read that in any kind of disparaging way at all, just so we're clear. Um, but it is a fascinating insight, isn't it, of what it means to worship that kind of God. The God of the Bible, however, is different. The God of the Bible is personal, and that changes absolutely everything. He is not a force or a power or a nameless deity. He is not a kind of yin and yang balance. God is a person. He relates in a personal way. And what that means very, very simply is he relates to us the way I'm relating to you now. He speaks. He has made us in his image. And so we can relate to him. And he's given us words to speak. Not only that, but he has revealed himself to us by name. To know God, he has to reveal himself to us. God cannot be discovered because he is transcendent. That means he is above us. <coughs> he is inaccessible, unapproachable, invisible. Think back to last term's talks 
and the difference, the otherness of the creator above the line that distinguishes the creature from the creator. We cannot get over that line. God cannot be discovered, which is a great problem for humanity. It, what, it means that we end up making God up in our own image. So you may have heard people say in the course of evangelistic conversations, something like, well, you think that way, but I like to think of God like this. You think of God as some judge who judges us. I like to think of God as a, as a gentle giant. I like to think of God as non-judgmental. I like to think of God as on my side. I like to think of God as more of a mother than a father. Have you heard people say things like that? But if you think about it, it's an outrageous way of talking. And you can see this when you use the same kind of language in regard to other people. I like to think of Joe Standwick as a short, red-haired French woman who plays the bagpipes. That's how I like to think of it. Which is outrageous, isn't it? Because clearly he is his own person and how I think of him does not determine who he is. And what I've tried to do is define a person who exists outside of my imagination. And that is absurd. And so it doesn't matter how we might like to think of God. He is not ours to define. He defines himself. He exists outside our imaginations. And therefore we cannot discover God by speculation, by philosophy, by sitting silently thinking... We can't discover him by ritual washings and saying mantras. And that is a great problem for us. Because it means God has to make himself known. Well, I wonder if you turn in your Bibles to Exodus 3. And I think this is the only place we're going to turn up and stay for a while in our Bible. So Exodus 3. And we'll see an example of when he does that there. Pick it up in verse 1. Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was telling the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. As far as memorable experiences go this was a big one a bush burning we call it the burning bush but in fact it's the bush that didn't burn isn't it it's the bush that wouldn't burn and yet notice that the bush experience itself doesn't tell Moses anything about God the bush is simply a strange sight it's a mystery until God speaks 
And it's as God speaks that Moses comes to understand God. And this is because God needs to reveal himself as a person. Until he speaks, he is completely unknown. Yes, there is evidence of his existence in creation. As Paul says in Romans 1, his power, his divine glory, the fact that he is there. But that isn't understandable in a personal way until God speaks. But because he is a person, he can speak. He can make himself known through ordinary words that people can understand. Because notice that what Moses hears are real words in his language. It's not a voice in his head. It's not a dream that he had the vision or some psychological phenomenon. He actually hears the word. So God cannot be discovered by us, but he is capable of making himself known to us. And so if we want to know God, we have to listen to his words. In fact, verse six reminds us that Moses is not the first person God has spoken to. He has spoken in the past to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He has made them promises about the future, about the land, about his covenant and his kingdom. Now, if we are going to know God, we're not going to meet him in the bush. But in the Bible, where he has spoken words that have now been written for us. And that is the experience that we can have now of God by opening his word and hearing But there's more because God also reveals his name to us as Yahweh. Verse 13. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. It's hard to work out why Moses asked the question in verse 13. It's hard to work out exactly why he thought the people of Israel might ask God's name. But instead of going into all the debates that have raged about that over the centuries, let me tell you why I hate going into Starbucks, in fact, why I never go into Starbucks. It's because, I don't know if this is still the case, perhaps someone can tell me if it is, or they've taken the hint and dropped it, but it's because when you go to Starbucks, the people who work behind the counter have the infuriating habit of asking your name. When you go to Greg's, they just take your money call you petal or love or darling or whatever it is they call you. But at Starbucks, they ask your name. And then when your coffee's ready, they shout it for the world to hear. Now, I've got a friend who hates this so much that he tells him his name is Adolf Hitler. (laughs) And then he watches with great pleasure as the poor barista behind the bar, who's usually a sort of 16-year-old sixth former or something, just trying to earn a penny in their spare time, has to shout at the top of their voice, skinny mocha fatu facu prano, whatever it is, for Adolf Hitler, anybody? Now, why does he and I hate a coffee shop barista using our name? It's because when you order a coffee at Starbucks, 
you're not trying to start a relationship. Or maybe you are. That's fine. If that's the case for you, then hang out at Starbucks. <laughs> but when I order a coffee at Starbucks, I just want a coffee. And I want to go. I'm not there to start a relationship. I much prefer it at our chip shop, Keys Chip Shop, highly recommended. Because what they do, even though I actually do know the guy who runs it a little bit, and we have a chat, but what they do is they give you a number. Now, can you see the difference between a name and a number? A number is just a label. It's very convenient. Names are personal things. To give somebody your name is to give them permission to get to know you. A name is the beginning of a relationship. Now, we know this in practice and we do it in all sorts of ways, don't we? It's on a Sunday morning, as you're doing the walk into church, intentional, prayerful, committed, brilliant, memorable points. As you do that intentional walking into church, you get to know somebody. What's the thing you do after five or ten minutes? You ask them their name. It's the beginning of a relationship. But in the Bible... A name is not just a label. It is a record of a person's character, their achievements, their reputation. In which case, Moses' question in verse 13 starts to make sense. It is not a question about the label of God. Which God are you? It's a question about his ability, his reputation. What is your character? What is your reputation? In other words, Moses is saying to God, How do we know you can really do what you're saying you're going to do? Can you really pull off this great rescue? And the answer is as profound as it is simple. Verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, at first sight, that sounds a little bit like a brush off, doesn't it? It's a bit like my friend at Starbucks. As if God is just saying, I can't tell you my name, I'm so incomprehensible. But no, that's not the case. This is God giving his name. So let's look at this more closely. You may have always wondered why in most English versions of the Old Testament, there are capital letters when the Lord is mentioned. Sometimes the word Lord is there in in small letters. The reason for that is as follows. Now, you don't have to sort of write all this down, but I'm just going to tell you for interest and for background. The name I am comes into the Hebrew language in which the Old Testament is written as a four-consonant word. Hebrew was written in consonants without vowels. The vowels were later kind of put in. And in the meantime, when Jewish readers read the Bible, they knew where the vowels went, so they pronounced them with the vowels, but the vowels weren't written in the original. And so the word I am is the first person singular imperfect of the verb to be, and it comes in four letters, which you may see sometimes written in books as the tetragrammaton, which means four letters. (laughs) She just looked really shocked. It's okay. She got away with it. So... No one knows how to actually pronounce it. Various guesses have been made. The old guess was Jehovah. So you may have heard people talk about Jehovah, Jehovah's Witnesses. It's a guess of how to pronounce that four-letter word. Nowadays, it's 
guessed that it's a better pronunciation to say Yahweh. It's the same four-letter consonants, but it's pronounced in a more appropriate and realistic way. Now, that four-letter word, Yahweh, is always translated into our English Bibles as capitals. Chinese Bibles, we can discuss over uh, the meal what happens in that case. It'll be interesting to know. But in English Bibles, the word Lord in capitals. Now, why is this important? That Moses now knows that God's name is Yahweh, derived from the word to be. Well, as always in the Bible, the context is what matters. The context of this, remember, is the beginning of the Exodus story. The beginning of the announcement that God is going to rescue his people in keeping with his past promises. In other words, this is a key moment in the Bible story. God has promised to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that he will do this. That he will bring his people into the promised land and rule them and give them blessing. But they're in slavery in Egypt. And God is saying, now I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to keep the promises I made. And that is connected to my name. In other words, and this is very, very important, God is saying you will come to know me by what I do to fulfil my promises. I am the God who has promised in the past. And what I've promised in the past, I will do in the future. Watch me as I keep my promises, as I rescue my people from Egypt. If you watch me, And you trust me, you will know me. That's tremendously important. The Israelites then watch God. He does what he does in that great rescue. He fulfills his promises. As they watch him and trust him, they come to know what God is like. We haven't got time now, but at some point, just read Moses' song in Exodus 15. And that song of praise, what is God like? He is like this. And so this tells us that knowing God is not mystical. We listen to his word. We listen to his promises. We trust those words. We take them to heart. We listen and believe. And as we do that, we know God. There is nothing more complicated to it than that. God says he's going to rescue us. He's done it in the way we saw this morning through the substitutionary sacrifice of his son on the cross. We believe that word. We know God. Isn't that gloriously simple and demystifying? You know God when you see him act according to his word. And you know God particularly when you see him rescue. And so that brings us to knowing God whose name is Jesus. Did you know that there are two times in John's gospel where people try and stone Jesus? And both times is when he said something that really, really upsets them. What's the thing that could most upset a Bible reading Jew? To use this expression that God has just used, I am. It is when Jesus claims to be Yahweh that they 
kind of understandably, pick up stones to kill him. They pick up stones to kill him because they understand his claim. They understand that he is walking on holy ground, that he is claiming that he will be the way the world comes to know God. See, we saw this morning that God has chosen a holy place where he can be made known. A point of contact where God comes to earth and does his thing. And this morning, perhaps surprisingly, we saw it was the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. Because that threshing floor becomes the place of the temple, which itself sets up the categories for the Son of God, the Passover Lamb, coming to fulfil all the promises that went before him. At the cross, Jesus, the true temple, the true Passover Lamb, dies... And we get, as Jack shared in that verse from Colossians, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And that is the defining moment. If you see that, that act of mercy, and you believe in it, then you know God. And that is why the Apostle Peter can say in Acts 4 verse 12 on the sheet, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There is only one route to God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why, as we'll see in more detail in another week, that we pray in Jesus' name. It's not just a magic formula, although we do kind of just slap it on the end of prayers, perhaps without thinking. But there is a reason we pray in Jesus' name, because we're saying we are praying to the God who has revealed himself to us in Jesus. We are praying to Yahweh, that God, not some other God. And this is the only doorway to that God, is to pray in Jesus' name. See, if you were to say to one of the great philosophers... Either the ancient philosophers like Plato or Kant, or Kant's not ancient, but you know what I mean, or one of the modern day philosophers like Stephen Hawkins or Paul Davis, both who claim to have discovered God by their great learning. And if you said to them, I actually know the name of God, I think they'd laugh at such a childish idea. But you ask any of our children in Sunday school from sort of, you know, one and a half years upwards or two years upwards, Who does your family worship? What is the name of your God? They would say Jesus. That is the name of our God. But Jesus then tells us something else. Jesus then gives us something even more extraordinary. See, it's great to have God's name. I have a name. Speaking my name puts you in relationship with me. But there are four people in this world who do not use my name. They call me dad. See, God has not only revealed his name, he has then given us a particular relationship with him. And so finally, God, knowing God, who is father. Now, as we talk about God as father, I'm aware of a problem. That is the problem and inadequacies and failures of human fathers. See, some people in this room have a great experience of human fathers. And when you hear the word father, you are full of positive emotions. For some people in this room, their experience of human fatherhood has been disappointing, even damaging, even 
very sadly, traumatising. And so when I say father, those people hear that word with that kind of baggage and the experience of their disappointing relationship with their human father clouding the picture. And I guess for the majority of us, it's going to be a mixture between the two. Well, let me say three things very quickly to clear the ground about this. Firstly, this has always been the case. Sorry, just chat. I haven't given you much space for this, but they're going to be quick points. This has always been the case. It's not just that we in the 21st century have particularly done badly at fatherhood. And back then when God decided that he would reveal himself to his people as father, he didn't foresee this. No, it's always been the case. There have always been mixed bags of fathers on, in the world. Secondly, it is relative. So not all human fathers fall short of the ideal standard as much as others, but all of us fall short of the ideal standard. So however positively you feel about your father, God's fatherhood is infinitely greater. And therefore, thirdly, we need to understand fatherhood not from our experience of human fatherhood, but from God's fatherhood. We have to do things the other way around. God is the standard of fatherhood and all other fathers are measured by him. In other words, to call God father is not a metaphor based on human fatherhood. Father is what he is. He is father because he has been the father to Jesus Christ from all, from the, to the second person of the eternity who then is born into the world as, as Jesus Christ from all eternity. So to call God as father is to actually get even closer to his sort of nature, his nature as creator, because what else is a father but a creator? You cannot be a father unless you have created. Well, for more on that, There's a book I could recommend called Fatherhood by Tony Payne. But calling God Father is a distinctly Christian thing. The Quran, for example, has 99 names of God. Not one of them is Father. But who calls God Father more than anybody else? It is Jesus. There are 10 references to God as Father in the Old Testament. In the Gospels, there are 150 references, all from the mouth of Jesus. So Jesus calls God Father and he invites us to call him Father too. And you remember that this is how he teaches his disciples to pray. They ask him, how should we pray? And he begins, our Father in heaven, which is a distinctly Christian way of praying. Notice that we don't pray to the Spirit, although he is God. We don't pray to Jesus, although he is God. We pray to the Father through the Son In the spirit, our father in heaven. Over the page and consequences for prayer. Firstly, we can pray to the only true God. When I introduce myself to you by name, I'm claiming something about myself. I'm saying I am a distinct person from you. I'm not a blank slate for you to write on. I am not someone you can imagine. I'm a person outside your imagination, but I'm inviting you to relate to me. When God gives us his name, 
He invites us to relate to him. We really can pray to the one true God. And so when we pray in Jesus' name, we're not just praying to some vague deity. We are praying to Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, therefore, we must pray to the only true God. The Lord has made himself known by name. And if we are to be saved, we must call on him. We said this a couple of times, but you can see it there in Romans 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, the Christian life begins by prayer. And as I've said a couple of times in the last few weeks, if you've not begun that life, if you've not actually taken that step and called on God, then do. Do it tonight. Nothing more simple is it than confessing Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart. If you do that, you will know God. Thirdly, when we pray to God, he listens. Just ponder again those words that we perhaps know so well. Our Father in heaven. Just ponder the two aspects of that. The fact that he is in heaven reminds us that although we can call on God as Father, he is not our mate. He is still distinct from us. He is still transcendent. But it tells us that we pray to someone who is able. Psalm 113, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. As we pray to our Heavenly Father, we are speaking to someone who can do anything we ask. On the other hand, we pray to him as Father. Even though he is the ruler of the universe, he is distinct and separate and infinite. He has brought us into his family as adopted children through the death of Christ. See, fathers are givers. If you are a father or you become a father, one of the things you will get to do is wrap up your children's Christmas presents and put them in a stocking and put them in the pillowcase under the tree and you watch them open their presents and it's one of the best things that you can do is to see a child and the joy on their face as they receive the gift that you have given them and Jesus says in Matthew 7 that even bad fathers enjoy that opportunity to give even evil fathers give to their children Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? This brings home, doesn't it, the incredible privilege we have to call God Father. A relationship that (coughs) Jesus has brought us into through adoption and this father loves to give he is perfectly generous perfectly able perfectly willing wouldn't it be foolish to neglect to pray to a father like that so let's do that now Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can pray to you in Jesus' name. 
Thank you that you are able to do anything we ask. And thank you that you are willing, that you have revealed yourself to be generous, gracious, loving, kind, powerful. We pray that you'd forgive us for neglecting to pray when we can. We pray that we might revel in this great privilege we have. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.